0: Chapter Twenty One Part Two of The Autobiography of Moncure Conway. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Autobiography, Memories and Experiences, Volume One by Moncure D. Conway. Chapter Twenty One Part Two The Country Was Misled About Fort Sumter had it been known that defence of that worthless fort was not at all felt by the President as his constitutional duty, and was contrary to the advice of the military head of the nation, General Winfield Scott, as well as of leading cabinet ministers, and that the President had determined on the step because, in his words now known, quote, the country expects it, quote, the response of the nation would have been different had it been announced to the country that the worthless and indefensible old fort was to be abandoned there would have been no murmur the thing feared was coercion of the nation by slavery and the country would not have justified the president in placing sumter as a chip on its shoulder and when it was knocked off staking the fate of millions on a shotgun duel with the confederacy there was no halo of martyrdom around the head of Abraham Lincoln to shed glamour on his actions in those days. His attitude was that of a politician who had proposed to render slavery eternal by a constitutional amendment, and was willing to barter for the Union all the anti-slavery enthusiasm which had responded to his summons. He had announced that the only thing he would not compromise away was his opposition to the extension of slavery into territories where it did not exist. The North would not have gone to war on that pet point of his. It marched to the john Brown song to free Uncle Tom from the lash of Legree, and did not watch the President as one capable of going to war on his old issue of extensionism, and ready to purchase reunion at the price of liberty and justice let us watch so i urged in that sermon after the fall of sumter and call for troops let us watch with eagle eye every compromise offered and every treaty the american arms can win no victory nor conquer any peace which shall not give the victory of humanity and peace from the wrongs that degrade and afflict humanity in the promethean games of greece those who ran in the races all bore lighted torches and he won the race who reached his goal first with his torch still lighted. If he reached the goal with his torch extinguished, he lost the day. It was not, therefore, the swiftest racers who won the prize. Indeed, the swiftest were more apt to have their torches put out by the wind. It is thus with the contest on the American arena. Our true prize cannot be won by getting the better of the South in an appeal to arms." what if when we reach the goal the torch of liberty entrusted to america to bear in the van of nations be extinguished what if by some dishonorable treaty with this or that state which would be a good ally in war we have pledged ourselves to continue enslavers of man and come to claim the prize with the light of that sacred torch lost then indeed we will have lost the day we seem to win we will have but postponed the revolution which can never really end until the throne of eternal justice be established on earth and all men gather about it as the children of a common father these quotations may appear egotistical but they did not proceed altogether from myself i was in constant consultation with the most eminent jurists of our city such as hoadley stallo and alfonso taft and in correspondence with anti-slavery leaders in the east all of us in those days saw in the uprisen north the splendor of a new heaven and a new earth responding we little feared the war-cloud while gazing with rapture on the rainbow that promised a covenant of perpetual peace to our so long distracted country it may be that my own personal sufferings from slavery partly inspired the earnestness with which every sunday i upheld my vision of god setting himself to satan nearly every sunday the congregation broke into applause but when in may the border states especially maryland and kentucky had their mephistopheles at president lincoln's ear tempting him to compromise away our cause cincinnati showed a strong contingent of copperheads as they were called who began to hiss and threaten when my loyal hearers applauded on april twenty eighth in view of the opening of congress on the approaching fourth of july taking for my text thou shalt say no i warned the people that efforts will be made there to make america read the declaration she made eighty-five years before backward and reconstruct the Union by accepting the southern Barabbas and giving humanity to be crucified. Quote. The effect on the Unitarian societies generally of the first menaces of war was remarkable. Our old controversies were turned to trifles in a moment. Those who had exchanged sharp words now clasped hands. Miraculous! who cared anything about what happened in palestine when at our door was the miracle of a new world in transfiguration here was the real advent the incarnation the angel song i am liable of course to project into my early memories the ideas of later years but before me are sermons delivered at that time of glorious visions we all saw in the President's seventy five thousand soldiers an army marching not to slay, but to heal, to liberate. During the first few months after Lincoln's inauguration, the crisis grew literally awful. The simple faith with which abolitionists had welcomed the uprising of the North as the great dawn of an emancipated America suffered a cruel disenchantment. The governors of Ohio, Denison, Kentucky, McGoffin, and tennessee harris met together ostentatiously in fraternal embrace to demonstrate that slavery was not involved in the war the government at washington was carrying its tenderness for slavery to such an extent as to remind the southerners continually that the existence of slavery depended on the continuance of the union what said the secretary of state what but the obligations of the Constitution can prevent the anti-slavery sentiment of this country from assuming at once the European type, direct emancipation, quote. Pro-slavery clergymen warned the border states that if they seceded, they would be surrounded by free states, and their slaves could not be held. This then was the union for which the flower of American youth was perishing, a union whose rivets were one with rivets of the slaves' manacle. At Washington, our generals were warned to prevent slaves from entering the federal lines. The impolicy was begun, which was persisted in, until in two years, more fugitive slaves had been returned into slavery under our present Republican president than under all preceding presidents put together since the foundation of the government. I have said impolicy, for with these slaves were excluded the only sources of information concerning the enemy. Three days before the disaster to the Union army at Bull Run, a special military order was issued for the exclusion of Negroes, and there is little doubt that the rout was owing to General McDowell's ignorance of the Confederate positions concerning which any Negro could have informed him my church being closed after the last sunday in june for two months i went to washington the city was a camp my old church a depository of arms so had quote, repelled light returned as lightning quote. the congressmen were assembling and i was present at several consultations of leading republicans of the left they were suspicious about the delay of the army feeling that in advance of the opening of the national congress a whole and corner congress of southerners and their northern allies was going on in the white house i witnessed the opening of congress on july four the president's message excited my distrust by its entire silence concerning slavery His long argument against the alleged state right of secession was not accompanied by any plea for the federal right of armed coercion to which he had committed the country beyond the power of Congress to exercise its supreme authority. On my way north I stopped a day at the house of Dr. Furness, where I found Senator Sumner. The Senator's serenity about the national situation was sufficient for him to chat about other matters." he told us that in coming through new york he had met horace greeley who invited him to come to his house next morning to early breakfast i went up there said sumner a long distance and greeley talked and talked over an hour about politics at last it occurred to him that i had not breakfasted and he called up the cook and asked her if there was anything for breakfast she said there was some milk and bread and cold meat on that I had to breakfast. Quote. The amusing thing was the serious disgust manifested by the senator in telling it. It rather increased my respect for Greeley, that he should be so absorbed in the state of the country as to forget breakfast, and I probably made that apology for him. I believe Greeley never drank coffee or tea. Dr. Furness and myself were eager to talk about the national crisis, sumner told us of communications he had just received showing that there was no danger of foreign complications he believed that the anti-slavery feeling of the north would be fully awakened by the logic of events and said that it was the opinion of two-thirds of the men he had met that the war would cease only with the termination of slavery he seemed to have faith in lincoln and to regard his omission in his first message of any reference to slavery as a politic disguise for the sake of the border states, a disguise which would soon be thrown off. Dr. Furness and Sumner both trusted a good deal in God. I said that I had heard all my life that God would end slavery, quote, in his own good time, end quote, but had learned from history that when reformation was left to God, he brought it about with hell-fire, That, I urged, was just our peril, and it could be averted only by using the natural weapon of liberty, namely, liberty itself. I knew slavery and the slaveholders well. If the President and Congress should at once declare every slave in America free, every Southerner would have to stay at home and guard his slaves. There could be no war. We could then pay all the owners with the cost of the army for one month. Furness and sumner earnestly accepted my doctrine and sumner begged me to devote myself to spreading it through the north and west in new york i listened to a characteristic address given by henry ward beecher at the island of the two brothers to the brooklyn phalanx he delighted the soldiers by his artistically homely eloquence expressing his proud resolution to fulfil his constitutional duty in running after fugitive slaves he confessed to a liability to be taken suddenly lame on such occasions, his acted lameness being funny. He described how, in dealing with a rebellious child, you first tried persuasion, then bribery, and finally a sound spanking, which raised a laugh in which I could not join. Mrs. Stowey was present and in fine spirits, She was a plain woman, or would have been such could one have seen her without the halo of Uncle Tom's cabin. The progressive Unitarians realized that the last tenure of slavery in their association was gone when they saw photographs of Theodore Parker in the shops, and when ministers who once rebuked our anti-slavery sermons were preaching in the same way. The Rev. Dr. Lothrop, meeting the Rev. Dr. Bellows, confessed that he could scarcely keep from swearing. Dr. Bellows replied that he also had of late been tempted, and had found some relief in reading David's psalms about his enemies. In Boston, July 7, I heard young Edward Everett Hale, since then become an institution in himself, preach before the Peace Society, He said that it would be carrying out their peace principles if their chairman had called together all the clergymen of Boston, and demanded that each should sell his raiment and buy a rifle, and proceed to Washington to earn the blessing pronounced on peacemakers. During my summer vacation I was continually preaching and lecturing on the theme that filled all minds. On my way to Newport, Rhode Island, to preach for my dear friend Charles T. Brooks, I travelled with Horace Greeley, who had recently resolved political partnership with Seward and Thurlow Weed. Greeley denied earnestly any ill-will towards Seward, but said he had no faith in him as a minister. Quote, Seward has and always must have a policy; a policy is just what we don't want; we want manliness. End quote. He was haunted by fear of a restoration of the slave power. Quote, we may wake up one fine morning and find the Democratic Party wheeled around and united on some base and ruinous concession for peace. End quote. I found that the pain and responsibility of editing the Tribune were telling on him sadly. He gave me to read an interesting newspaper letter by Agate, Whitelaw Reed, and in talking it over, he deplored his own connection with journalism. Quote, a man had better be a hod-carrier than a journalist." There was an almost infantine sorrow in his eyes as he said this. With the cry of the Tribune at that time, forward to Richmond, where the Confederate government was to fix its capital on July 20, I could not sympathize, having still the hope that our armies should only occupy the border with camps that should be refuges and asylums for slaves, so compelling slaveholders to return to their homes at eagleswood new jersey i addressed the school established there by theodore weld it was a pioneer institution in many ways the first in which young women were found educating their limbs in the gymnasium rowing in boats and making records in swimming and high diving under the tuition of theodore weld and his wife one of the famous Grimke sisters of south carolina who there rebelled against slavery, and under the influence of Mr. and Mrs. Marcus Spring, pecuniary founders of the school, its anti-slavery sentiment had for many years been of a bold type. Mrs. Spring, an accomplished lady, had during the John Brown affair gained permission to nurse the survivors in their Virginia prison. She had also obtained the bodies of young Hazlitt and Stevens, who had longed to be buried in a free land. I was shown their graves at Eagleswood. Mr. Spring had obtained a bundle of letters and documents found in the establishment of slave-dealers in Alexandria, Virginia. It was strange indeed, to read amid these happy girls at Eagleswood, this correspondence relating to the prices and sales of comely girls and boys. I shuddered to think that these things had gone on in my native region without my ever suspecting their existence." and felt that Nemesis had become the doorkeeper of that Alexandria slave-pen, Kephardt and Company, then, 1861, filled with white prisoners. I visited Easton, Pennsylvania, to meet my mother and sister, the wife of Professor March of Lafayette College. They had just arrived from Fredericksburg, Virginia, after a perilous journey of ten days my mother had taken up such strong opinions against secession that her continuance in fredericksburg had become imprudent i wrote down at the time some notes of my mother's statement when it was found that come what might the convention at richmond would vote down any ordinance of secession a secret circular was sent to every prominent democrat in the state demanding his instant appearance at richmond and when these had flooded the city the convention was informed that unless they would at once put virginia out of the union they would be superseded by another convention even if it must be done by violence my mother seemed to think that the majority voted for secession with pistols at their heads in this she was mistaken the majority did not vote for it at all at the critical moment when the final vote was to be taken Lincoln's proclamation came demanding of Virginia a quota of troops to fight Southerners. The anti-secession leaders then left the convention, some of them in tears, and the minority had it their own way. Had the President delayed that ill-timed proclamation thirty-six hours, Virginia would have been kept in the Union. The convention would have adjourned, and another could not have been elected. My mother told me that her brother, Travers Daniel, had pleaded passionately against secession. Some months afterward, an old Democrat asked him what he was doing. He replied, Carrying weapons against my country. It is what you and your party have for thirty years been bringing me to. He was the Attorney General of Virginia before and after the war. The speeches made by Wendell Phillips during the year 1861 were the most eloquent ever delivered in America. Several of them were found in Redpath's volume of his speeches, 1863, and may at this day be read with the deepest interest. Emerson, after hearing Phillips, said, "'A poor Negro who cannot read made the finest living orator.' It is wonderful to see this ornamental person, whom one might expect to find in the galleries of Europe, devoting himself to the humble slave. Quote. His wit reminded me of Charles Lamb. A colored speaker, Charles Redmond, alluding to George Washington, the slaveholder, called him a scoundrel. When Phillips spoke, he objected to the epithet. Quote, it isn't graphic, Charles. If you call George Washington a scoundrel, what word have you got left to describe Frank Pierce? Quote. Octavius Frothingham told me that the most eloquent speech he ever heard was given in New York by Garrison. I have several times heard thrilling speeches by Garrison, the charm of which was the self-forgetfulness with which he threw himself into his subject. Garrison gradually became a frank unbeliever in the orthodox creeds, and even wrote a vindication of Thomas Paine, but mrs Stowey said with truth that there was more of the old hebrew prophet about him than about any other man in america on the evening of sunday july twenty one eighteen sixty one i preached in the unitarian church at new bedford Massachusetts. the building was crowded the papers having said much of my being from virginia whose capital had become that of the confederacy the day before While I stood there picturing an American millennium of liberty and peace at hand, thousands of United States soldiers routed at Bull Run were lining the roads to Washington with the fleeing or the fallen. The new Bedford Quakers were present in good number, and grasped my hand because above the armies I upheld the banner of peace, contending that no drop of blood would be shed if the President proclaimed freedom for every slave." Not one man or woman did I meet in New England who did not agree with me in that. But the President, who assumed the right of determining without aid of Congress or court a constitutional issue on which statesmen had been divided for generations, and on it plunging the nation into war, was scrupulous about touching slavery, and on Monday morning the fearful tidings of defeat and slaughter arrived. The next morning I breakfasted in Boston at the house of the rev james freeman clark with the rev w h channing and found them less hopeful than myself of the effect of the defeat on opening northern eyes they were justified many pulpits began to explain the defeat as a punishment for beginning an attack on sunday and the president responded by proclaiming a day of fasting and prayer never in the history of the world was a tremendous national experience more entirely wasted. I went to Concord, but optimism had fled even from the home of Emerson. The town was in trepidation for the fate of several of its youths who had not been heard from since the disaster at Manassas. Emerson said, We need a more scientific knowledge of the nature of a rattlesnake, and may be taught by this defeat but in view of the odds in the late battle it appears doubtful whether the same multiplication table is used in washington that prevails in new england thoreau sadly out of health was the only cheerful man in concordia he was in a state of exaltation about the moral regeneration of the nation i went with emerson to boston for the saturday club dinner july twenty seven motley and channing were present and a goodly company assembled to welcome the guests but i had reason to remember the saying of voltaire i hate war it spoils conversation heavy on every mind was the humiliation of the flight of a corps of that army which had gone to washington but a few weeks earlier full of high hopes and anticipations of speedy victory there was a cruel disillusion but for myself, it related rather to the administration than to the soldiers, who had been sent out under the order of July 17, not so much to fight slaveholders as to catch their escaping slaves for them. Emerson said, quote, If the Union is incapable of securing universal freedom, its disruption were as the breaking up of a frog pond. Until justice is the aim of war, one may naturally rather be shot than shoot, it was painful to look around that table in the parker house and see the sad faces of the men who represented the great literary age of america the morning stars that had sung together for joy in the advance of every noble cause were now silent it had been whispered around by anti-slavery men believed to be inspired by the president that he was really with us but that he could not deal directly with slavery until after some military success had placed him in a position to do so. Some pressure of that kind had been brought on Horace Greeley, resulting in the tribune's cry, On to Richmond. The advance was made, the bull-run disaster followed, and Horace Greeley was made the scapegoat. Knowing Horace Greeley well, I felt the injustice of the public fury against him, And on hearing that his health had broken down under the denunciations, wrote him a letter to which came the following answer: New York, August 17, 1861. My dear Conway, I have yours of the thirteenth. I have been very ill and am yet too weak to work, yet am doing so because I must. I scarcely slept at all for a week. Now the best I can do is to get two or three hours uneasy oblivion every night but I hope I shall mend. The Tribune did suffer considerably by the truth told by Warren, etc., about the want of purpose and management at Washington, and I think would have been ruined had I not resolved to bend to the storm. I did it very badly, for I was all but insane, yet I hope all will yet be well with us. You see that everybody is now saying that we were right originally with regard to Scott, etc., and that the cabinet ought to be reconstituted. My strong objection to the attack on the cabinet was that it would, because of the momentary fury against the tribune, keep them in when they want to go out. No president could afford to have it said that a newspaper had forced him to give battle, and then turned out his cabinet because he lost that battle. My friend, the hour is very dark, but I have not lost my faith in God, if this people is worthy to fight and win a battle for liberty and law that battle will be won if they are not i do not see that there is any more a place for so weak and poor an instrument as i am if our baseness requires the humiliation of utter discomfiture that will be our portion and the father of all good will work out his holy ends through other and purer agencies in any case, and however the end may be postponed and obscured, this infernal rebellion seals the doom of slavery. And so, asking your prayers that my unworthiness may no wise hinder or postpone the fulfillment of God's benign purposes, I remain yours, Horace Greeley. In passing through New York again, I was the guest of Octavius Frothingham, to whose congregation I preached, he invited two or three leading men to meet me, among them Henry Ward Beecher. We felt it important in the crisis brought on by what seemed the restoration of Pierce and Buchanan in the President elected as a Republican, that as public teachers we should see eye to eye. Beecher was angry enough, but his humor was irrepressible. I remarked to him that it was about time for some American prophet to imitate the ancient prophet And break a big pitcher on Pennsylvania Avenue, proclaiming that so should our guilty nation be broken to pieces. He replied, You would only lose your crockery unless you hit somebody. They all agreed with my plan of reaching the rebellion by striking at its heart, slavery, but only frothingham seemed to think it practicable. I went back to Cincinnati somewhat disheartened at times traveling with rough and brutal soldiers, it appeared to me horrible that the great and noble cause of freedom should be given over to such hands. My journey to Washington and the East had been a pilgrimage to the houses of the interpreters in search of light to guide me in my own duties as the minister of a great church close to the land of slavery. Alas, the anti-slavery fraternity was shattered." the president's determination to settle the issue by a duel had flushed our band like a flock of wild turkeys and we could not get together again in our virginia woods the sportsmen having flushed a flock used a turkey bone whistle whose imitation of their voices led the poor birds within reach of his gun and now the fife pretending to play the march of liberty was leading some of our best abolitionists to espouse a suicidal war well, I must sound my little pipe as well as I could. I brought my own congregation to sympathize with my plan, and that was encouraging, for among my hearers were Alfonso Taft, Judge Hoadley, William Green, Judge Stallo, and some eminent businessmen, among these being Lerner B. Harrison, late president of the First National Bank in Cincinnati. I then determined to go through the state of Ohio appealing to the people, Sen. Sumner and Secretary Chase were consulted about this, and said that a number of men in Washington were ready to pay me for such lectures. This I refused, for such addresses to be useful must be those of a man reared in Virginia, son of a slaveholder, and entirely unpaid. But as I wished that the lectures should be entirely gratuitous, I agreed that these friends at Washington should pay the bills for the halls rented, And this was done through Senator Sumner. I was astonished at the feebleness of the opposition with which my argument for immediate and universal emancipation as a war measure was met. At Xenia, where I began, the replies invited were not given, but when leaving the hall, I found a gentleman, pale with excitement, haranguing several hundred who had been inside. As I stepped out of the door, I heard him say, Every word was false as hell. At Yellow Springs I addressed the students in Antioch College. Forty of the young men had enlisted in the army, and I believe the female students for the first time felt some inferiority. Among the enlisted students was a grandson of the famous Alexander Hamilton. He was a very attractive youth, and the college president, Thomas Hill, told me that he was of upright character and studious. Among my hearers at Dayton was Clement L. Landingham, leader of the pro-slavery Democrats, who replied in his Dayton organ. Against my contention that the President could abolish slavery by martial law, he argued that by the Constitution treason should not work corruption of blood except during the life of the traitor. After his death, his property must revert to his heirs." he warned the white laborers that we abolitionists having brought on the war were now trying to bring a horde of negroes into ohio to take the bread out of their mouths of myself personally he wrote it seems to us that about three months in fort mchenry in a straight uniform with frequent introductions to the accommodating institution called the town pump and without the benefit of the writ of habeas corpus Would have a tendency to improve the gentleman mentally, and, for a while at least, rid the community of a nuisance. A few months after this criticism appeared, the honest fanatic who wrote it was himself in prison, while my father's slaves were being colonized in his neighborhood without exciting any opposition among the white laborers. These were the only hostile incidents I can remember. I visited every important town in Ohio and some of the villages, and my lecture on the crisis of the nation was well reported in the local papers. I made the acquaintance of many influential people, and was able to report to my friends in Congress that the majority of people in Ohio were in favor of immediate and universal emancipation as a war measure. It was a sad trial to be so much absent from my wife and child— but she was as enthusiastic for the cause as myself, and was surrounded by relatives and friends. Every Sunday morning I managed to be in my pulpit, and every moment when I was not lecturing or preaching, was devoted to the preparation of my book on the absorbing subject. End of chapter 21, part 2